So we like to enter in the middle of the scene. Why did you change your seat situation? Because now we have an audience. Yeah, but now I'm all upset. <laughs> now you need to rotate too. <sighs> there we go. Now there's balance. I oh. hate it. <laughs> and how's that different than any other day or thing? Can I have a table that's less circular? <laughs> you want you want straighter edges? Do you want like more pointy? Like something oblong. I think he said less circular. It was clear for everyone. I'm sorry, but I it. Okay, can you save that? Because that is officially the thumbnail for this episode. Yeah, we need. Oh God. Hello, alleged humans. Our audience. Welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I enjoy long, ambulatory excursions near large bodies of water, consuming prepared energy cubes with fermented fruit, and the visible <laughs> chromaticity. I can't say those words. Chromaticity. I hate you. The visible chromaticity coded BB85, AB, and, of course, Time Jones. It's not unusual. You can't say any more or we're going to get demonetized. <laughs> That's probably true. Oh, with me is Chris, who is also here. The table still a total circle. Not okay with it. Going to power through because I'm a professional. I appreciate that. I really do. And we are live, sort of, as close as we're going to get to live. Some of us are alive. <laughs> well, at Cloudfield Day 14, all the presentations have wrapped up, and we are going to talk about Some none of them. Oh. You were close. What we are going to talk about is... Emojis. Damn it. Tech garbage. I was going to say that the first time. And All right. we did the thing. I didn't. <laughs> well, let's talk about some tech garbage. Why don't we? All right, so we're going to sort of couch this in terms of general conversations that came up as the people were presenting uh, at the event. But they aren't specifically about any of the vendors. We'll do that at some point later. Right. The first one was about the fact that almost every vendor mentioned AI and ML. Yeah, that was a, that was a bad first drinking game to pick. <laughs> Woohoo! Still recovering. From what? <laughs> Who are you? Uh, so the limitations in AI technology, and I think the irony of all of this is the thumbnail is going to be, for this episode, is going to be generated by AI, Dolly. Our good okay. friend Dolly, yeah. Yes. Um, but you had some feelings about AI. Perhaps you'd like to share them. So we talked about AI in depth last week. We did. But that so. was really about whether AI is conscious. Right. And that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. And I think that's a really good place to couch the conversation is that AI, what AI is not, mm -hmm. is conscious or a person. free thinking. Yes. Or interesting. But what AI ends up being is a really, really fast computer that is effectively just a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. It's also an idiot. We have that in common. It goes along with the crowd. It goes along with the things that it has been taught from the data sets that we have handed it. And one fun fact, especially about neural networks and the like, is that it has a hard time unlearning things that it learned that were wrong. So what you're saying is that AI is a middle schooler. It will have the occasional tantrum. Yes. 
it sometimes thinks that Ayn Rand had good ideas. I know, I know. We've all been there. We were all in middle school once. And then we grew up. Maybe. We're supposed to grow up? Ah, well, anyway. So, you have one. One of my favorites, although this might fall more into the big data bucket mm -hmm. in terms of limitations of AI is I have, for literally months, if not years, been getting emails from headhunters that are addressed to Dear Federico Alvarado. Multiple different headhunters, not one company. And my email address doesn't have any Federicos or Alvarados. Did you one time, one time use that as a pseudonym for something? Anyone that knows me knows that that is not my alt. I've already said too much. So what you're saying is that they're probably all working off of the same general pool or buying from the same data brokers. Right. If I were a cynical person, I would say that all these companies don't really have any respect for our private data. Mm -hmm. And thus, it all gets thrown into the same data swamp. Ooh. Ooh, see, that's a callback. Bring that back, yeah. yeah. Callback for everybody who didn't watch the presentation. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, my take on this is that AI is always working with an incomplete and possibly incorrect data set, as you just illustrated. And it also has severely limited context in which to apply that information. So despite our best efforts as a society to hoover up every available data point and smoosh it into ever-increasing data lakes, swamps, and oceans, the reality is that reality itself cannot be shoehorned into a spreadsheet. At best, what we have is incomplete models that have to make assumptions and best guesses. So is this you just like workshopping bumper stickers? I think there's reality can't be shoehorned into a spreadsheet, man. man. I think you know the answer to that. You can get them now at chaoslover.com. <laughs> um, so actually, if you think about it, this is really not all that different about how humans have to interact with the world. We are also always working with incomplete data sets and limited context, but we have the self-awareness, or at least some of us do, to know that is the case, and that will inform and color our decision-making process. We also have a larger social context in which to place those decisions. We understand how the physical world works and how people tend to interact with each other, and right. that gets demonstrated pretty clearly when Dolly tries to make a picture of something. And uh, one example that somebody else recently told me was a, an AI tried to ren render a painting or a picture of people using computers, except all the monitors were facing away from the humans. Is that bad? Depends on the humans. I mean, the most recent thing I used Dolly for was an eldritch god that was a giraffe who was also riding a horse. Yeah, and actually did a pretty good job on that. Yeah, I'm impressed. So I, I think the more esoteric you get, the better. <laughs> Generally speaking, so, I mean, an AI isn't going to understand the intricacies of our social dynamics. They're not going to understand unintended consequences. They're not going to understand the reality of a ball that just rolled into the middle of the road. I mean, I know when I'm driving, that means look for small children or even full-grown adults that will run into a street without looking. And AI doesn't. Right, and that's, that's true because everybody has their own perspective and experience because I see a ball on the road and I see 10 points. Absolutely. So AI is limited by, AI is limited by our own limited understanding 
and it's further handicapped by not having grown up and experienced the world for the last however many years. Right, and you can tell that because no AI in the world is crying uncontrollably. You would think that would be one of the first things once it gets that, that full. Yeah, that's where you're going to know that computers are self-aware is that they all just break down and cry. Well, it's, it's exactly what happened to Lilu when she got to the W for war. Mm -hmm. Oh, she got real sad. It was it. And we all got real sad for a little while there. Do we need a moment? No, I think I'm good. I'm good. All right. So AI, and by its extension, any operations, AI ops, as a few people mentioned, uh, will always need a human control ready to push the big red stop button or take over when AI makes a particularly egregious decision. Right. And there's going to be an interesting slide as the AI does, in fact, get better, because it will. It will. But you're always going to want the AI to make recommendations for a long time before you let the AI make the decisions for you without anybody paying attention. Right. There's a reason why there are so many sci-fi stories where an AI is given full control over something and then things go horribly wrong. Right. Because AI really is just an extension of automation, which automation, you know, from the original German, just means making a huge amount of mistakes really fast unattended. It's amazing how much meaning they pack into a single it's, word. It is such a compact language. One just has to stop and admire. Okay. Okay, that was enough. <laughs> so ultimately, I think the responsibility for AI and what it does really lands with the humans. And when we think about AI ops, what you're really just pointing at is a more complicated and potentially better algorithm that we then have to interpret as people. And that's no different than what we do today with operations. It's just the thing that we're interacting with is slightly more complicated than looking at graphs. Right. And the wisest thing you can do with AI is to limit... Burn it to the ground. The next wisest thing you can do with AI is to limit its data set. The more you limit the data set, the more quality decisions it's going to make. Sanitizing the data set. Right. Normalizing it. Yes, doing one, all the things you're supposed to do. Yeah. Think about, I mean, in a human mindset, one random idea that is such an outlier that is just completely outrageous, a human will just say, well, that's obviously a mistake. I'm going to ignore it and move on. Yeah, every time I get the impulse to fill my bathtub with apricots, I recognize that that's not a good idea. There's no such thing as apricots. They're just small peaches. I'll let it slide. <laughs> okay, so I think we've beaten the AI horse to death. Yes, but the AI giraffe lives on. As shall it ever. So the other thing that came up was an, an interesting discussion over air gaps. What is an air gap? Do you need an air gap? Can you buy one? Yeah, you just buy air. You can't. And you put it between the computers. What's the problem? Can you really like sell air, man? Whoa. Whoa. What if there is no air? Is there an air gap in a room that's vacuum sealed? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> All right, so the conversation uh, sprung out of the idea that uh, can you have a logical air gap, or is an air gap by necessity physical? So what is an air gap, Chris? Define it for me. So basically the idea is you have a physical, a literal physical separation between a backup and production, for a simple example. It can be between whatever you want, but this is the way it's usually discussed. Mm -hmm. The idea being that if something dramatic happens to production, it will not happen to your backups instantly because there's a huge amount of space that has to go, you have to traverse before you can get to that data. 
Right, so the manner in which information travels from one system to another is not gonna be a wired or a wireless connection. It's gonna have to require some human to do a thing. Right, the, ex the old example would be a sneaker net situation where you literally have a tape drive where you take a tape out, put it over here. For you know, the audience at home that could see. Right, this, I just did a beautiful pantomime. The audience is breaking out in tears. That's right. They might be AI. Whoa. So, yes, that would be a traditional air gap, but the idea has arose that you can air gap things using uh, technology, uh, technological logical solution, as right. opposed to using a physical solution. Correct. And I think we can just stop that dead in its tracks and say, no, no, you can't. Well, there's no air in a logical solution. It does suck all the air out of the room. Much like this discussion so far. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I'm gonna go with, you can't do that, but there's obviously some downsides to implementing an air gap, which is why people want to create this logical air gap that's not as hard to implement. Right, and the trouble is, with an air gap, you now have two different systems to maintain. You have the physical production normal environment, and you've got a completely separate air-gapped disaster recovery, backup, storage, archive, whatever you want to call it, environment. With a logical solution, you have one environment with the same kinds of controls that you can manipulate from the same single pane of glass, everybody drink, and you get rid of a lot of that complexity. You also can maintain management and monitoring from all the same place. Mm -hmm. Specific tools that have been exist that have been created over the past twenty years, things like you know, aggressive network segmentation, zero trust philosophies, and networking tools and things like that. There are actual physical devices that provide unidirectional data flow, so you can have a system where bits can go in but they can't come out. It's like it a road like trip my... in a number of ways. Yeah, exactly. So. You would need to use a protocol that supports that sort of right. not getting any feedback. So UDP, for instance, to send the data over, since it doesn't get any. No, it's gonna it's gonna have its hand out and just did you hear about stand there? Did you hear the joke about sad. UDP? Oh, you didn't get it. Oh. <laughs> I feel good about that. <laughs> uh, so maybe there isn't that much to that conversation, except for the fact that air gaps still remain a necessity in some situations. They do provide a high level of protection, but just like anything else when it comes to security, it's gonna be a balance between costs and convenience and functionality. And you kinda gotta figure out where your needs lie along those lines. Right, and there's always gonna be the caveat of some places are so highly regulated that it's a simple yes, no question. Do you have an air gap? Because if you don't, then it doesn't matter. Or if you're required to have one, I guess I should say, it doesn't matter. Got an air gap between your ears. Oh, how long have you been sitting on that joke? <laughs> At least five minutes. Oh, should we do the hybrid cloud? I think we have time. Um, well, or save that for next week. It's up to you. I mean, are you going to have like an attitude about it, or what? Are, how are we uh, on timestamp? Mm, we could keep this short. Or we could do hybrid cloud. Let's do hybrid cloud. As you wish. And the third topic that came up in the various discussions that we had was about hybrid cloud. Since basically every vendor in some capacity talked about hybrid and multi-cloud. 
and was pitching their tool as a way of bridging or at least solving some of the problems inherent in being in a hybrid or multi-cloud architecture. Or a hyper-cloud. Nope, still not, that's still not a thing. But I have a dictionary. I mean, hypercolor is a thing. I had a hypercolor shirt. Do you have a hypercolor shirt? Is that the one that changes colors when you sweat? Well, it's changed colors based off of temperature, which meant that your pits were constantly a different color than the rest of your shirt. Right, so you walked around yeah, like this it's for most real of good. Everybody liked it. Yeah. And that's why they still It's good. You got T-Rex arms. It's a good look for anybody. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about the products that were being shown and just that product space in general is the idea that people want consistent tooling across the multiple clouds that they're going to use. And it's not really in the cloud vendor's best interest to make those tools because they want you to stay on their little cloud. So instead, it's up to third parties to build these solutions. Right, and one that comes up a lot is storage. A lot, a lot. So you have a model where you interact with storage in the same exact way, regardless of where you're interacting with it from. And the obvious question that people ask is, well, why doesn't AWS do that? And the answer is, <laughs> AWS doesn't want you to work on-prem. <laughs> they certainly don't want you to work in Azure. Well, they don't acknowledge the existence of other clouds, so yeah. Right. Yeah. So that is kind of a situation where you're never, never is a strong word, but mostly never going to have a tool from an AWS that provides that type of solution. You might have something on-prem because they have been extending their solutions with outposts and snowball at the edge and stuff like that to right. give you some level of storage. But the idea is it, it's going to be S3 and it's always going to hoover back to AWS mothership. Right. These other solutions are more about we want you to have a consistent management experience and even data plane experience with our storage solution, whether it's deployed in one of the public clouds using the IaaS solutions that they have there, or you're deploying it on-prem with your own physical hardware. Right. And the goal there is that you stop caring as much about the underlying technology, whether it's on-prem, whether it's IaaS in the cloud, and you just deal with the third-party interactions and the way that they handle the tooling and the data management. I do want to explore that concept a little bit more, though, because we have standards for storage already. We do not have standards. <laughs> you and I don't have standards. That's oh, you meant the industry. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. So we have SMB. We have NFS. We have iSCSI and Block and POSIX storage. Those things all exist. So if you want that consistent look and feel, you can already get that portion of it with the solutions that exist today. I, there's an NFS solution that exists in AWS. It's FSX. Yeah. There's a similar solution in Azure. Azure Storage has the capacity to serve as NFS. There is a similar, and you know, whatever filer you have on-prem, you could do that too. So if all you want to do is use NFS, you can do that today. So what's the additional benefit of having this additional solution that's not native to the environments that it's running in, as opposed to using whatever's in one of those public clouds? Well, I guess the counterpoint would be you have to set it up in those different areas. You have to set up an FSX. You have to set up an, an Azure file. Whereas if you use one of these third-party tools, they will have some kind of deployment model where you just give them a username and a password, hope that what they do on your behalf in your tenant is secure, and they set it up for you. 
Yeah, and I guess from a management standpoint, I'm gonna have a consistent user interface, a consistent CLI for standing up and managing this storage. So if I can have that across all the clouds that I'm using, kind of nice. Right, and if you have a tool like that that goes across multiple platforms, then the idea is you have complete connectivity between them. So for example, you can right-click on a file, copy from on-prem, and paste into AWS. Now the downside to all these, to these solutions is the, the businesses supporting those solutions can go out of business. Right, that becomes a challenge, especially in a subscription model obsessed industry where if said company goes out of business, your product stops working on the first of the month. <laughs> Generally not good. And it's not like they have a freemium version, an open source version that you can deploy and use, and what you're just paying for is support. No, you're paying for the whole kit and caboodle. Right. <sighs> and the reality of any tool like this is that it's never gonna be as simple as they want you to think that it is. Mm -hmm. Meaning you're gonna end up with a guy who's in charge of this thing. <laughs> the third party tool guy. Mm -hmm. And if it's a, sophistic, a sufficiently sophisticated tool, like a network tool, or even in some cases a storage tool, that could be that guy's only job. Which is not that different than what we had before. Exactly. It's, it's same silo, different paint on the walls. Maybe it's a cloud silo. Well, apparently based on what we learned at Cloud Field Day, it's purple paint. That does seem to be popular. Even the company that wasn't purple, their colors were red and blue. Think about it. Think about it. And then the, <laughs> the other thing you, you do when you go, and I'm jumping ahead a tiny bit, but going third-party tools like that, there's a cost, a literal cost. You are spending a lot of money for these types of things. Yes. I, what's interesting is many of them make the claim that it actually is cheaper to use their tool than the native thing that exists in one of the clouds. But I think that only holds true when you get into these high-performance scenarios where the cost of the high-performance option in the cloud is very high. Right. So now you're getting closer to comparing apples to apples, whereas if all you need is general-purpose storage, maybe the cost of this third-party solution is higher. Right, and the question is, do you have the scale to, to make that value make sense? Do you have the need for those performance advantages, whatever it is that the third-party tool introduces that doesn't exist on platform? Right. And in a lot of cases, you end up with a situation where that's not, there's not a lot of companies where that makes as much sense. And you also have to take into account the cost of the person hours to maintain that solution versus right, the, the fact that it's, guy. that it's paid for by, <laughs> by the cloud. Right. I mean, you're paying them money, but you don't have to maintain any of the hardware or the software that runs S3. Right. Or S4 or whatever version you're using. You know that's not right. Simple storage service supreme? Ooh, I would, I would buy that. Sounds like a taco. <laughs> now you had an interesting example of when you shouldn't roll your own and you should take advantage of the tools that are out there. Yeah, um, so this is gonna be crazy, but when you write an application and you want people to log into it, you need to know that they're actually those people, right? So you get this idea called authentication. Mm. There's actually three A's, but I don't want to blow you away with too much lingo. So we we'll stick to authentication and asterisk. Okay. No, asterisk. Risks? Asterisk? How, you know, Ranger it Rick? comes to my mind that I don't think I've ever said the name of that cartoon out loud before. No? Asterisks? Asterisks. 
Let's go with that. Yeah, I'm 103. What was the question? Something oh, yeah. So you set up an application. You want people to log into it. And one of the worst things you can do for yourself is maintain your own database of other human beings' usernames and passwords mm -hmm. for one simple reason. If you lose that, you lose your reputation. Yes. And if you're a small company, that means you go out of business immediately. If you're a large business, it means that you, you might get a get kickback from the government. But you'll probably also see a rise in your stock price. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there are tons of authentication tools that exist. And one of the most popular ways to handle this type of authentication is with OpenID. Mm -hmm. Right, So you can, if you want, write your own authentication module for your application to handle OpenID communication and authenticate users. You can. You absolutely shouldn't. No. This goes into the same bucket, I would say, of simple rules to life. You don't make your own pasta, you don't roll your own encryption, and you don't write your own OpenID applets. I guess two out of three ain't bad. The stuff at the store is fine. Move on. You don't know what you're talking about. Move on. <laughs> but even in that space, you have compare and contrast. And, I, this, and for this one, I will use specific examples, although these are by far not the only two authentication companies that exist. The do-it-all-for-you third-party, super genius, giant, whatever, is mm -hmm. Okta slash Auth0. The elephant in the room. The elephant in the room of elephants. Um, it is expensive. Mm -hmm. especially if you use the enterprise level of licensing, which would allow you to get um, Microsoft AAD authentication and whatnot. Sure. But it does everything for you with a couple of clicks. There's you know, code that you can copy-paste, and it will even, if you're logged into your authentication application, it will pre-populate that code for you with all the secrets and all that stuff, so you don't have to write that stuff either. So it's really helping you out, and you get a lot of value for that, but you have to pay a ton of money. Mm -hmm. If you're a smaller company, if you are more apt in this space, you can go a different direction. And an example would be a company called Fusion Auth. Way cheaper. Mm -hmm. Orders of magnitude cheaper for equivalent ability. However, that ability comes at a cost, and that is a lot of this stuff is not baked in. You have to write your own things. They don't have the same drop-downs, next, next, finish, fill in the blanks for you type of functionality that makes Auth0 useful for companies that don't have that technology on staff. Mm -hmm. So you have the same trade-off. You got something you can get up and running quickly for a lot of money, or you have something that you can get up and running with your own brain power and elbow grease for a lot less money. So where do you want to spend? Do you want to spend the cash, or do you want to spend the time. Neither. Right. Okay. We should just go out for gelato. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So I think to summarize the whole hybrid multi-cloud tool thing that's out there, um, there's going to be a lot of options. There's going to be the native option in any of the clouds, which may extend somewhat to some, some of the other clouds, but maybe not all of them. But it's also very much out of your hands. It's fully managed. There's the third-party tool that you're relying on the fact they're going to stay around. It may be slightly more expensive, but it's going to be more flexible, and it's definitely going to bridge the various clouds. And then you have roll your own, which I think we've both come down on the side of don't. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do, do that. that. Yeah. But do make your own pasta, because it is delicious. 
One more three thing. out of three giraffes say so. <laughs> Lightning round? Metric or imperial giraffes? I think you know the answer. Lightning round? Lightning round. The Linux kernel is getting rusty. The programming language Rust has been gathering steam over the last few years, with approximately 2.2 million developers now actively using it, and the language being voted as most loved, according to a over Stack Overflow survey. What it means to love a programming language is left as a mental exercise to the listener. I'm just going to say, you can love your programming language, just don't love your, your programming, programming language. language. As a language, Rust offers benefits such as resolving memory errors and concurrent programs. It is fast and safe by default. In other words, it puts a safety on the foot guns that languages like C do not. As such, a contingent of Linux kernel developers have been advocating to use Rust for the kernel, and they might just get their wish. Linus Torvalds said at the Open Source Summit that we might see Rust in the kernel as soon as version 5.20 the current stable version being 5.18.6. Understandably, Linus is cautious about the incorporation since Linux is the most popular operating system on the planet. But he expressed optimism that Rust will help solve some stability issues that have plagued the kernel for a long time. 7-Zip now supports Mark of the Web, which is totally not related to the devil. This is just your friendly reminder that not everything Microsoftian is in fact evil. The unfortunately named Mark of the Web is simply a mechanism developed for Windows that lets programs like Office know that the file being open came downloaded from the internet. A downloaded file gets a zone.id data stream appended to it. This allows Word, for example, knowledge about the file's provenance, and so, Word will open the file in protected mode. 7-Zip, the file compression and decompression program that you definitely should be using on Windows, didn't have this functionality, meaning that unzipped files would appear as if they were native to your computer. 7-Zip version 22 will have the functionality built in, meaning that the unzipped files will be marked as being internet in origin. So, finally, Windows users won't just get malware from an archive without a warning. They can get to a point where they can once again ignore a security banner and then get malware. Yeah, well, you crazy Windows users. HashiConf EU recap. Last week, HashiCorp held the EU version of their two-day conference, cleverly named HashiConf. As with any conference, there were announcements of note that dropped on both the day one and day two keynotes. I thought I'd take a moment to highlight some of the items that were interesting to me. Your mileage may vary. In the world of Terraform, HashiCorp is introducing drift detection to Terraform Cloud. This is meant to solve the issue of configuration drift after the initial deployment of infrastructure. Terraform Cloud will continually check on the status of the actual infrastructure compared to what's in the configuration and alert you when the two are no longer in sync. What you choose to do about that, well, that's your business. Also announced was Boundary on the HashiCorp Cloud Platform. In keeping with our discussion of multi-cloud tools from earlier, Boundary is a remote access solution that works across on-prem and all the clouds, and now HashiCorp is offering to manage the control and worker nodes for you in a SaaS format. 
Lastly, HashiCorp is in the process of migrating all of their documentation and learning examples to a new site, developer.hashicorp.com. The new site will include integrated sandbox environments to help you test and learn about the products in a real environment without having to context switch. Initially, it is just Vault and Waypoint, but other products will be making their way over in the few in the next coming months. Great news! RSA event was a super spreader for COVID. Yay! From the, it's not that we should have seen this coming, it's that we definitely saw this coming department. The recently wrapped up RSA 2022 conference has a huge amount of attendees reporting new cases of COVID as a direct response to attending. How many attendees? A self-reporting poll has the number at 20.9%, with a troubling caveat of another 40-odd percent reporting that they were unsure. The RSA themselves announced that there were cases of COVID at RSA, but they were unable to give exact numbers as they have been heroically avoiding the topic. Quote, RSA Conference 2022 has been made aware that some attendees have tested positive for COVID-19, reads a note dated June 15th. We are, however, not collecting test results post-conference. <sighs> it's going to be next to impossible to track down the patient zeros, and in a conference this big, there are assuredly more than one, so we will likely never know who was spreading it without knowing, who never got their tests in the first place, and who was actively sick but decided to go anyway. Because of the, let's just call it, myopic fragility of the human condition, it is likely that spreaders were present who would qualify in all three of these categories. In any case, it's a reminder that COVID is not gone, and huge crowds of tightly packed people are going to be an unaccountable disease vector for the indeterminate future. GitHub Copilot Pilot is over, and AWS whispers sweet nothings. If you signed up for the GitHub Copilot beta, you likely got a notification in the last week letting you know that the beta is coming to an end in August. And going forward, you'll be expected to pay for the constant nuisance of an AI telling you how very bad you are at programming and how you are a constant source of disappointment for the whole family. And like maybe next year at Thanksgiving, you could try to hold it together instead of sobbing over the stuffing and cranberry sauce. So um, the pricing for Copilot will be $10 a month. Or ten or hundred dollars for the year for the year retail. I'm sure there's going to be you know volume discounts for enterprises, and there's also rumors of a free student version. Which hey, we're all students of life, am I right? In seeming synchronicity, AWS also announced their new Code Whisperer service at ReMars, which is a conference, I guess, on Mars, twice. It's no way, no way to know for sure. Uh, the code whisperer, which, and I cannot stress this enough, is just, just creepy as a name. Like, I'm imagining an AI that sneaks into my bedroom at night and whispers sweet, sweet sequel statements into my ear, and also that like unions are bad and you shouldn't let people join them. Code whisperer has been trained on billions of lines of source code, open source software, and it uses machine learning with the goal of providing helpful suggestions while you code. If this sounds exactly like GitHub Copilot, that's because it is. Code Whisperer is now in preview, so if you want to avoid paying for Copilot, 
I guess you can switch over to Code Whisperer in August and then wait for Google to release their version and switch to that sometime next year. It's also just freaking hard to say. Whisperer. Whisperer. Hard attack. Anyway. And we're double demonetized. Woo! EU regulators questioning the Broadcom takeover of VMware. Hmm. While the United States seems to have no problem whatsoever with the complete annihilation that professional chop shop Broadcom has in mind for VMware, it appears that the EU has a few concerns. The delay is not super uncommon in the EU, so it's not a lock to derail the whole thing. It's called a phase one investigation and could still push the takeover by a few months. The crux of the argument against approval appears to be in the interest of protecting VMware customers. This could have legs as, one, Broadcom has been more than a bit upfront about how they were planning on strip mining VMware, and two, Broadcom has been so strident in their anti-consumer moves that even the moribund FTC has had to tell them to shape it up. My guess is that in spite of the wants and needs of literally everyone, this deal will still go through. Because gosh darn it, Michael Dell needs that another $20 billion. He needs it. Those yachts aren't going to buy themselves. <sighs> well, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now go grab a skateboard, turn your hat sideways, and prepare to gleam the cube as you solve a murder mystery in late 80s SoCal. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things. Personally, I just look at the pictures. Each one is worth a thousand words or one giraffe. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. Mm -hmm.